0: Well, thank you everyone for joining us today for um, another panel discussion on how the ongoing pandemic is impacting constitutional rights and liberties and the um, type of issues we should be most focused on um, and steps we should be taking to make sure that we respond to this crisis in the best manner, both for public safety and for individual liberties. Um, Today we're discussing a very um, important and daunting topic, which is Um, immigrant rights, and especially um, the risks posed by um, immigrant detention, um, which is obviously a very acute risk um, given our current public health crisis. We have a really great set of panelists today, so I'm really just thrilled and looking forward to this discussion. Uh, First, we have um, from POGO, Catherine Hawkins, who is the Senior Legal Analyst at the Constitution Project of POGO, and expert on immigration, detention, and human rights and um also i want to plug on just that she is the author of a new report that we just put out um today on uh serious problems and deaths in uh ice facilities uh the reports available on pogo.org and also i believe there's a, a news story analyzing um the information that we've uncovered um that just came out on npr so i very strongly recommend um checking out that report and the coverage of it um, some very disturbing but important uh, information. Uh, Next, we have Dr. Scott Allen, who is a professor emeritus at University of California Riverside School of Medicine, medical director of the Access Clinic at Brago Health, co-founder of the Center for Prisoner Health and Human Rights at Brown University, and is also a DHS whistleblower on health risks to immigrants, workers, and the public from COVID-19 and ICE detention. Um, And I believe he's the co-author of um, a separate report that just came out today on those issues um so obviously this is a very topical issue and finally we have judge bruce J. Anhorn, adjunct professor of immigration asylum and refugee law at pepperdine university and executive director of the asylum project uh, he's also a former u.s immigration judge um so um yeah it's, it's thrilling to have such a great set of experts here to be talking about this very important issue so um starting off the discussion dr allen uh, What are the the risks to detained individuals when facing this type of public health crisis? And what type of overall factors and issues should we be most focused on and thinking about as we're considering immigrant health?
1: Well, I've been uh, in the field of detention health for over 20 years as a physician, uh, both providing care inside facilities and in more recent years doing inspections and, and consultations with a variety of uh, uh, court systems and, and uh, others. Uh, the risks associated with infectious disease in, in detention settings is always foremost on our mind for one particular reason. Detention settings involve congregate living. People are living in very close quarters. And so, you know, uh, infections Um, that might pose relatively low risk in the community can pose a great risk in detention settings. Now comes the COVID-19 virus, and it really uh, is the worst case scenario that we've all been dreading for years. We see how bad it is in the community um, with rapid spread, but it's just a nightmare in detention settings. Um, It spreads very efficiently, and one of the uh, most challenging things about it is that uh, much of the infection is asymptomatic. So trying to identify and quarantine or cohort or isolate individuals um, so that you don't spread through your facility um, is really, really hard to do. Um, so we were aware of this uh, very early on as the sort of dynamics of COVID-19 uh, became evident to us in the public health community. Um, and very early on, uh, recognized that the usual things that you do to try to protect people from infections, those things like screening, testing, isolation, quarantine, and so forth, we're not going to be able to handle COVID-19. So colleagues and I, um, several months ago, started trying to raise the alarm to everyone who would listen um, that uh, populations needed to be reduced in detention facilities uh, to try to head off. And the reason for that is the, the best technique available to us right now is the same thing that's available in the free world, and that's social distancing. And I, I think, as you can imagine, in detention settings, especially uh, often at maximum capacity or with overcrowding, uh, you just don't have that as an option. Um, you can achieve something somewhat related to our approaching social distancing if you get your facility populations down significantly and have some room to uh, allow for distance and to shuffle people around and isolate and cohort. So that was the technique that uh, previously we haven't, uh, you know, used as our primary technique, but it's come to be probably our best technique now. I think everyone um, on on the call with us today would recognize though, um, that's uh, been used to some extent, but not to the extent that we'd like to see to um, provide impact. The only other point I'd like to make just as an opener is the other thing we, we were keenly aware of is detention facilities when you need help when someone gets sick enough most detention facilities don't have hospitals and they rely on community hospitals Um, so that we were also thinking ahead and realizing that a lot of facilities would if they were to have an outbreak that were to rip through a facility um, there there would be two problems one staff would probably be bringing this outbreak home to the community and there'd be a community spread of covid19 that would be a public health concern but also as people got sick in institutions they'd be sent out to hospital and require ICU beds and ventilators that were precious and could well overwhelm um, local hospital systems. And the paper you referred to is actually colleagues of mine, I'm not one of the authors, but uh, um, it's colleagues of mine uh, who uh, did uh, modeling studies um, and just released an article in the Journal of Urban Health um, pointing out that over half of the immigration detention facilities in the United States are in communities that the local hospital systems would be overwhelmed uh, were they to have an outbreak.
0: Thank you. Um, Catherine, what what are the problems at immigration detention facilities that we've been encountering even before, you know, there was any knowledge that this pandemic was gonna happen? And how do those problems exacerbate the risks of the current crisis?
2: Yeah, um, so, I wrote a piece on um, the documents that the piece is based on actually um, are on people who died in detention before COVID-19 existed. Um, and ICE Healthcare has had problems for years um, with treating people, um, especially treating people with serious medical conditions. Um, in the last few years, the population of people in detention has increased quite a lot and There's also been, um, there used to be a policy in place calling for um, a presumption in favor of release against someone with serious medical vulnerabilities. That was ended. Um, There was a policy that was supposed to, is still technically in place, but is not being honored about um, releasing asylum seekers if they pass a credible fear interview. So um, the detention population, has gotten higher um, and then with medical care i mean there's problems with understaffing um with um with medical ex with uh, medical providers being asked to pr- provide um more services than they're licensed for so um a, pract- a practical nurse rather than an rn an rn rather than a physician um difficulties uh, people have trouble getting care in detention beyond ibuprofen, um, or, or Tylenol often. Um, and when people are hospitalized, sometimes you see people with quite serious conditions actually being taken to the hospital, but then being released rather than admitted. And it's unclear if it's because they don't go with their medical records or because, um, Uh, hospital staff wants to focus more on the general community than on ICE detention. Um, And so, and in some of these cases, and in um, two cases we looked at closely, um, problems with Medicare, medical care seemed to lead to a detainee's death that might have been preventable. Um, And that was in a normal time. When you throw in a pandemic, in addition to you know, more people get getting sick, and the congregate environment. You also are likely to have staffing shortages and a local health system that's already overwhelmed. So it's really a major problem. The other, um, a lot of these problems are true of jails, any jail or any prison. Um, in ICE detention, though, people get transferred from facility to facility an awful lot um, for reasons that always aren't always clear, and that doesn't seem to have slowed down nearly as much as one would hope Mm. um, since this pandemic started. The population in detention centers has decreased from a year ago when it was over 50,000. It's now closer to 30,000, but the main reason for that is um, they've started turning people away at the border and um, not letting them into the United States at all, even if they had an asylum claim. Uh, There hasn't been much urgency to release people by DHS yet.
0: Um, Dear John Horn, it's clear that we have some very significant problems. We have issues that potentially could get much, much worse as the pandemic continues. So what type of responses can we take to address these issues? And and what should the priorities be as far as how we can try to deal with these various issues that are being described?
3: Well, I, I think we should begin by remembering that people who are in immigration detention are civil detainees. They are not convicted felons Uh, who are serving time in either penitentiaries or jails. Uh, And I think it can be unfortunately argued with great conviction uh, that the individuals who are in civil detention in immigration facilities are being subject, either deliberately or inadvertently, but just as uh, dangerously, uh, to punitive action. the conditions, even without regard to COVID-19, have been abysmal. And the ability of these detainees to have access to counsel, particularly uh, if they are transferred away from uh, their original internment to another facility, uh, has become a major, major issue. Uh, There is a lack of discretion that used to be quite broad among federal immigration judges to release whole categories of individuals. Essentially, uh, the authorities within the Department of Homeland Security are punishing, as I say, either deliberately or inadvertently, individuals who are being detained in immigration facilities. Uh, And this has become a more relevant fact in the wake of COVID-19. Because I think it can be argued, and I would certainly argue that the inability or unwillingness of Homeland Security officials within Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, to uh, release more individuals, to provide more space for individuals, and to provide adequate testing for individuals with regard to the coronavirus. And the inability or unwillingness of Homeland Security officials uh, to take note of the medical conditions, the chronic conditions uh, that often affect immigration detainees and make them more vulnerable to COVID-19 and serious effects from the coronavirus uh, have become more aggravated. Secondly, I think it's important to understand uh, that if you've ever uh, tried to make a tapestry as opposed to uh, undo a tapestry, you'll find that the former, however challenging, is much less difficult than the latter. Uh, Unthreading a tapestry can be almost impossible. I bring this up, because last night I was reviewing as much as possible all of the various regulations, all of the various guidelines from all of the various agencies that impact on immigration detention, both with regard to COVID-19 and with regard to medical conditions generally. And it is extremely difficult to unthread the various aspects and regulations and guidelines promulgated by various agencies that have jurisdiction. One of the most serious problems is the difference between ICE's guidances and the uh, pronouncements of the Center for Disease Control, the CDC with specific regard to COVID-19. I'll give you an example. Until very recently, ICE did not categorize women who were pregnant as individuals with specific medical conditions that might make them more liable to the dangerous effects, the already dangerous effects of COVID-19. That is totally out of line with what the CDC has said and what doctors and healthcare professionals have been telling us in the free world uh, for the last several months. Uh, Another example is uh, the crazy quilt that exists between ice run facilities and privately contracted facilities between federally run facilities and state and local facilities that exist for immigration detainees based on contracts with the Department of Homeland Security. It would be, I think, insane to draw the conclusion that all of the healthcare standards, let alone the most stringent, designed to protect individuals in this time of COVID-19 are being equally enforced among all these various agencies of supervision and control. It's very difficult to to regulate and oversee this crazy quilt of agencies. Uh, Finally, uh, we have to understand uh, that the law is always playing catch up with science, including medical science. This is always true. Uh, The law, when it moves quickly, still moves in the slow lane when compared to developments in medical science. And sometimes the law takes one step back for every one step uh, forward. Uh, This is particularly true uh, in regard to an election year, to be frank, where non-citizens are not a priority for politicians because they don't vote in November, because they don't vote in primaries, because they're not allowed to participate in caucuses. So uh, non-citizens are not a primary concern and you will hear a lot from otherwise educated people uh, who say, well, we can barely keep up with the necessary uh, protection and treatment of those of us who are citizens with regard to COVID-19. How can we possibly worry about these detainees? Perhaps the best thing to do is to convince them to go home, and perhaps the threat of COVID-19 will do that. Not only is that a I think, a barbaric point of view, but it it, it isn't a practically uh, successful point of view. These individuals are not in a position to go home, uh, nor are they necessarily willing to do so. Uh, having said all that, the, the real engine of change in the law uh, will have to be in litigation, at least as of now. Mm-hmm. And the courts have had a mixed reception to claims that uh, immigration custodial authorities have acted inadequately, again, either unwillingly or deliberately, with regard to standards of care and best practices uh, towards detainees and with regard to the way they're treated. And a classic example is that courts have not yet ordered immigration facilities to create more, if you will, rooms, rather than open areas where detainees sleep. And uh, as a result, those who have COVID-19, particularly those who are asymptomatic, have been demonstrated to be more likely to infect individuals uh, because those other individuals uh, are living in close proximity to them without protections of rooms. Uh, There are some courts that have acted on, particularly since 85 percent of all of the detainees who have been tested for COVID-19 have tested in positive fashion, but only a minority of these individuals have been tested. There have been federal courts in Los Angeles and New York that have acted to force the hand of the government to enforce more rigorously the standards and best practices to which uh, I've alluded. But there have been courts that have also said uh, that this is a premature act or that it is an undue burden on the Department of Homeland Security as opposed to an undue burden on the individuals detained. But let me end by returning to my first point. These individuals of whom we're speaking today are not convicts in a penitentiary. They are civil detainees and the overwhelming majority of them have never committed any crime in the United States. They're being held by the Department of Homeland Security under the immigration laws and regulations, which have been now enforced in a very stringent way, notwithstanding medical issues. And let me say there is an additional danger to us. If and when these individuals are released and they've not been protected adequately, they will become a threat to us while their cases are pending. So it is in the interest of American citizens to do something about the problems facing non-citizens in civil detention. Okay, thank you. Um,
0: so for, I'm gonna open up the discussion now, on am right for our audience members. Um, you can click the raise your hand function or um, send text in a question using the chat function to me um, if you'd like to ask something to the panel. Um, I actually wanna follow up on, on that, Last point you made, um, Judge John Horn, um, and I was hoping that you and the other panelists could kind of elaborate a bit and sort of what exactly are is the importance or implications of um, the difference between uh, civil proceedings and attentions like this compared to criminal and, and more generally, what are the constitutional rights that exist for um, individuals in the situation who are um, you know, not citizens and not necessarily lawful residents. I I think, Unfortunately, we still far too often encounter that notion of people saying, oh, well, you know, there are consequences to breaking the law and people who have come here um, unlawfully have have broken the law. So um, could you just kind of elaborate on sort of what are the details of that and and what rights are due to people um, in these situations?
3: Well, first, we need to remember that not all of those in civil immigration detention have entered the United States unlawfully. Hmm. The issue may be a change in their status or a lack of status that occurred after their lawful admission. But even with regard to those who came without inspection, who, as they say, jumped the border, we're not talking about individuals who've committed crimes involving robbery or rape, murder or burglary or grand theft. Uh, The great majority of these people uh, have been held in custody because their status is subject to question. And most of them have not yet had a hearing to determine whether or not uh, the government's allegations against them regarding lack of status are true. Uh, In criminal detention or uh, incarceration, uh, there is an element of permissibility regarding a punishment visited upon those in turn. That is to say, one of the recognized and legally sanctionable purposes of criminal incarceration is punishment, and perhaps in another webinar, we can discuss that issue, but uh, punishment is relevant uh, to the issue of criminal detention, and so if you're considering issues of cruel and unusual punishment visited on inmates, uh, it's a very different analysis with regard to what is excessive regarding criminals than those in civil detention. Uh, The problem with those in civil detention uh, are at least as great as the problems with criminals in incarceration facilities like penitentiaries. But the fact is, is that these individuals in civil detention are actually being given less rights to challenge the conditions under which they are institutionalized. the many courts have argued that as long as they have procedural due process rights to fair hearings on their status, that unless they are incarceration or detention, shocks the conscience, uh, which is a phrase that is used uh, to include almost stratospheric mistreatment, uh, that they don't have a claim against the government. Uh, however, There is an emerging line of litigation uh, strategy uh, which I endorse which says that although procedural due process is guaranteed those in civil detention, so is the right to substantive due process. Mm -hmm. Procedural due process in, in regard to the Constitution guarantees each of us as a person, not with regard to immigration or citizenship status, to a fundamentally fair hearing on issues related to our lives, or our liberties. Substantive process refers to certain rights, either enumerated in the Constitution, or regarded as inherent, uh, perhaps through an interpretation of the Constitution and the fundamental freedoms that have always existed in the United States. And that those rights may not be uh, taken away without certain profoundly compelling governmental interests and that the rights must first be recognized. Uh, Moreover, uh, to conclude the the, uh, Eighth Amendment protection against cruel and inhuman treatment has begun to be interpreted by federal courts uh, as an argument that individuals who have never been civilly detained for the purposes of punishment are being Visited with medical maltreatment by the institutions that confine them, and that the effect of this maltreatment constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. So, when you add the cruel and unusual punishment argument to the substantive due process argument, you have a theory under which, a two pronged theory, under which you can challenge the uh, conditions that civil detainees in immigration custody. Live, particularly because of the onset of COVID
0: nineteen. Catherine, Dr. Allen, do you have any uh, follow up or additions?
2: Yeah. um, So, under the sort of the standard, the legal standards for um, medical questions in detention tends to be is is the institution acting with serious um, what is it? Deliberate indifference to an individual's serious medical needs, um, and in the cases brought uh, challenging ICE detention in COVID, they've tended to focus on um, individuals who are elderly or have diabetes or hypertension or um, a number of other underlying conditions that place them at greater risk. And I haven't been able to follow quite every case, but a lot of judges have been ordering ICE to release people. The problem is that um, you know it's most ICE detainees do not have lawyers at all, and so no matter how, um, if you go individual case by individual case, even if they're successful, it's it doesn't really address the the whole mass of people in ICE detention um there's been one court that has in a class action that has said that ICE was that the plaintiffs had shown um a deliberate indifference to medical care in ICE's response to the pandemic at large um and ordered ICE to improve its compliance but um getting the agency to comply with that court order it, in a you know and making it a, a genuine priority is can be difficult.
0: Uh, all right. Um, question from the audience from a uh, Monica Price. I've heard that it, that federal government is pursuing more charges against people for illegal entry. What point during this process does that happen?
3: I'm sorry. What what kind of uh, crimes or allegations have been charged? What was Monica saying?
0: Um, I- believe it just a legal entry, um, that more charges are being brought.
2: So I, um, my information on this might not be completely up up to date because I was looking at it, uh, very early in the COVID-19, uh, crisis. As I understood it, the, um, so there is a criminal statute that, uh, prohibits entering the country without inspection more or less. Um, and, it is routine. There are, um, in normal times, that's one of the most commonly prosecuted federal crimes. And the court hearings don't really look much like trials at all. It tends to be mass guilty pleas. Um, can be 50 people at a time pleading guilty, um, usually sentenced to time served because it's a petty misdemeanor. And then um, it usually transferred to immigration custody after that. So my understanding was that In the jurisdictions that usually prosecute that that they had actually stopped doing it because the hearings themselves in addition to the detention centers were um, major risks for the spread of the virus Um, That said I last checked with a federal public defender about this several weeks ago So it's possible that they've restarted. I certainly hope not, but um, I thought those had been paused
0: Um, Another question uh, from Daniel Harris. Uh, Do governors have the authority to request for those in detention to be released, given that um, those individuals are in federal custody.
2: Does anyone want to feel that? Because I'm not-
3: Well, I, I personally uh, doubt that state governors would have the right to order these individuals um, to be released. But I was reading some materials the other day that said that with regard to contracts, Through which the federal government has uh, paid the state uh, for the so-called privilege of housing civil detainees in immigration custody, that through a doctrine known as force majeure, that through intervening circumstances beyond the uh, ability of uh, contracting parties uh, to handle, that a contract may be deemed to be abrogated or amended. This is a rarely used procedure, but I think uh, an argument could be credibly made that state governors could make uh, the claim that their contracts uh, with the federal government must be abrogated or revised because they have been unable to cope with the coronavirus situation and that the federal government has not played a substantial part for all of the reasons I mentioned earlier. Uh, That would be an interesting strategy, uh, but in fact, given that we already have now a uh, tension, if you will, a creative tension between the way some governors are handling COVID-19 issues in their states and the way this administration wants that to be handled. uh, I think an argument can be made that governors can use their power to Uh, on the doctrine of force majeure abrogate certain aspects of their custodial contracts with the federal government. I'm not suggesting that that argument will be successful, but I think the argument can be made credibly and might prompt the feds to behave better.
2: Yeah, I think um, there's probably not jurisdiction for the governor to just say, release these people. Um, when they're not detained by the state, but you know, states do have quite a lot of authority to regulate, to take measures to protect public health. And so there may be um, things they can do as far as inspections and conditions and requiring communication to state health departments and things like that. Um, But I think outright release by the governor is, is much less likely.
3: I should also add that under principles of federalism, States cannot reduce rights-guaranteed individuals, including uh, detainees that are found under the U.S. Constitution or U.S. statutes. But states are permitted to advance additional rights. And uh, with regard to what Ms. Hawkins said, if pursuant to the reserve powers given the states, uh, governors feel that it's necessary to impose additional health standards. Uh, that would be something I think governors could do. And then the feds would have to react to that, even if those issues were not in the actual contract between the federal government and the states with regard to civil detention.
0: So um question I, I, I'd like to follow up on, a major issue we're facing overall during this pandemic is lack of testing. That's... Um, continuing to be a major problem, um, but for detention facilities such as ICE spe- de- detention facilities, it seems like there's actually a, a perverse incentive not to push for more testing because doing so reflect, could reflect um, a very severe problem. So, h- how do we try to deal with this issue and and make sure that there actually is adequate testing at facilities to show to what degree there actually are infections um, in detention facilities and to what degree um, there might be very severe health risks that need to be responded to.
2: So. Go ahead, Dr. Allen.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, we have some cautionary tales from um, uh, jails and prisons in the United States. I I think uh, some of you may be aware of press reports coming out of Ohio where they did do the right thing. And once they had identified that they had COVID-19 in their facilities, uh, the chief one, Um, or they did this as Marion, although there are other facilities they looked at, um, when they recognized they had COVID-19 and then concluded, as we all would conclude, because it's so hard to contain, the right thing to do is to test the whole population. When they did so, they found out that uh, roughly 80% of the inmates were positive. Uh, And more importantly, 95% of those who tested positive had no symptoms. I think we're at a point now where we have to make the argument that as soon as you know you have any COVID-19 in your facility, whether it's a staff or whether it's a detainee, um, aggressive testing um, should follow. And certainly if you have a few cases or you have what looks like a small outbreak because several individuals presenting with infection because they're symptomatic and they're sick and you recognize them is always going to be the tip of an iceberg. Um, You know, it's a little different than the community. We have both legal and ethical responsibilities to the health and safety of the people we detain and the staff uh, who work in these facilities. Um, and because we know they are very efficient uh, institutions for spreading this infection, uh, you it justifies a very aggressive approach. And I would make the simple comparison um, to outbreaks on uh, in nursing homes and uh, cruise ships and so forth. Once you know you have a problem, in those cases, we don't Uh, seem to have any problem accepting that we better just quickly test everyone, screen everyone um, with tests to get a handle on what the problem is. And and, and one additional practical point, if you're going to try to mitigate your risk once you do have an outbreak in your facility by cohorting, isolation, and quarantine, provided you have the space to do that, um, you can't do that successfully until you identify who is infected and who isn't. And that, again, requires universal testing.
2: Yeah, um, so until about a week ago, we had no idea at all how many people ICE had had tested for COVID. Um, Then a reporter found out it was a couple hundred. Um, It wasn't until I think yesterday that they put the number of, they started putting the number of tests they would conducted on their website. I know because I was sort of like desperately reloading it for trying to figure out um, for my reporting. And Right now, as of last night slash this morning, there were four hundred and four hundred odd positives out of seven hundred odd tests. Um, and that's with out of thirty thousand detainees in ice custody um, right now. so it's I'm sure the actual rate is much, much higher. Um, and I think it's it's really important to keep to press um for accurate numbers from ice and it would be good to know um for for judges evaluating whether you know how risk, great the risk is at certain facilities in the court cases ice was sending these uh, sending declarations from the warden saying well we've had no confirmed cases or we have two confirmed cases if that's out of you know three tests that's pretty alarming and the judge needs to know that um so they can act with enough urgency
0: so, so the implications are, are not only the public safety element of you know there there might be kind of a you know see no evil hear no evil attempt as far as lack of testing but that can also have ramifications you're saying on the legal side or on kind of other responsive and protective measures of you know, someone like a court kicking in to say okay you need to do x y and z steps because of the problems that are happening
2: yeah yeah and i mean in some i don't know that this has happened in ice facilities but i know in some local jails you've had very strange bedfellows where the correctionals officers union has filed a brief with the aclu arguing that the jail's response was inadequate because there is a real risk to um to staff at the facilities too and then you know and then to their families and communities
0: Uh, along those lines what is causing the the range of problems that that we're seeing here. I mean, is, is it a matter of lack of resources? Is it neglect or indifference? I mean what you know, the point you're making right there about kind of that this endangers workers as well as detained individuals would imply that it's not that. Is Um is it bad training, lack of information, lack of available tests, so it, or is it or is it one of those very tough all of the above yeah,
2: in general, I mean, ICE has a standard line about the, you know, that the health and welfare of individuals in detention is our top priority. And and just realistically, jailing people is not good for their health and welfare. And one of the first most obvious questions to ask is, does this person need to be in jail at all? And um, there is a real reluctance on ICE to think, actually, public safety might require that we release this person, not detain them, because you know, maybe they did drugs 20 years ago, but that is not a reason to, you know, put them at risk of death. Um, with respect to healthcare and ICE detention generally, I mean, I definitely don't envy the doctors and, and nurses who work at these facilities. Um, I think some of them, a lot of them do their best. In, in some cases, there's a sort of unfortunate tendency to dismiss detainees as malingering and, um, faking their symptoms. Um, I don't know that that's, I, I know that, you know, there, there are cases where that's been a problem, but I, I wouldn't want to say that's the main problem. There's also just a lack of resources and, um, they're just, these facilities are designed as, you know, they're, they're jails. It's hard to take good care of anyone in a jail.
1: a just reminded
0: the audience members, if you have a question, um, you can use the raise your hand function or um, text it all on a question and we can uh, read it out. Um, so we talked about trying to reduce the um, number of individuals in these facilities, obviously to kind of reduce the burden of um, treatment, to stop spread, to just have less people who are exposed to the dangers that are happening right now. Um, what's going on as far as, um, uh, uh, Beyond release, the uh, the addition of new detainees, um, you know, there's been some discussion of slowing down or stopping um, arrests and new detentions. Is that something we're seeing? And how important could that be to alleviating some of these problems?
2: I think there has been a slowdown in arrests, um, and so some of that was is again, I mean, they they there's an order basically closing the border to people. And as far as, you know, worldwide community health, if people are stranded on the other side of the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, they could they could remain in quite dangerous situations. Um, there also have been, I think, fewer ICE raids or ICE detentions in the community um, and, and fewer people coming into the system that way. And it's definitely important that that continue. Um, I mean, this administration does have a pretty strong ideological commitment to um, enforcing the immigration laws to their greatest extent possible even if that means disregarding other parts of the laws that are supposed to protect um, non-citizens and so there have been some measures that have been taken as you know supposedly for public health where then there's a phone call to the advisor Uh, of Stephen Miller saying that actually this is going to be permanent because we need to reduce the number of people coming into the country. So um, that's a problem. I think I have forgotten what your original question is.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, part of this problem is is that we are, as a country, uh, one that I've called incarceration nation. Uh, We have, if not the highest rate of incarceration per capita, we have one of the highest incarceration rates per capita, certainly the highest among the democracies in the world. Uh, This goes way beyond civil detention of immigrants. But there there is a culture in this country, a political culture, and a law enforcement culture, Uh, that uh, anyone who has violated the law should be put away where we don't need to hear and see them quite as much without regard to the gradations of violations uh, uh, alleged against them. Now, yes, the number of people being brought into the civil detention facilities has decreased. But I think that there has been no major thought given Uh, to releasing individuals from civil detention. In fact, I would argue uh, that there has been more public exposure to the problems faced by criminals incarcerated in penitentiaries in this time of the coronavirus than there has been for civil detainees uh, jailed in immigration holding facilities. Um, And part of that is the politics, which is to say that, Non-citizens don't vote. I mean, even felons are gradually getting the right to vote in certain states, but not, uh, not non-citizens for all the obvious reasons. Uh, and yes, this administration is ideologically committed to making everything possible, uh, necessarily possible, a fact to dissuade immigrants from either coming to this country or staying in this country. Um, I'm Again, I'm not suggesting, nor am I ruling out, that this administration is using the coronavirus as a weapon. But I am suggesting that this administration has aggravated either the indifference or the incompetence uh, of our immigration custodial authorities to deal with this. And uh, I, I wonder whether any Freedom of In- Information Act Requests have been filed uh, with the coronavirus task force headed by our vice president who doesn't wear masks at the Mayo Clinic, even though he's been asked to do so. Whether any Freedom of Information Act request has been filed on on that body, uh, asking whether that same body has dealt with the issue of immigration, civil detention centers, and COVID-19. Um, but I'll bet you, in reality, that none, of, that none of the answers would be yes, there's been no dealing with it. And that would speak volumes, if we could get the answer.
0: We've been uh, speaking a lot about um, releasing individuals as a way to mitigate risk and, and, and reduce public safety um, problems from this. Um, Imam Bukidman, From the audience asks, where are individuals being released to in situations where releases are occurring?
2: Um, I think most often to a live with a family member. I mean, a lot of people in immigration detention have have family in the United States. Um, Though I don't have that's just a very general impression.
3: I would agree. Also the. Part of the problem is access to counsel. I mean, I I might make the argument that although the statute does not guarantee the right to counsel uh, to those facing removal or deportation proceedings, there is a substantive due process right uh, to protection of life and liberty and a procedural due process right to fundamentally fair hearings that in the context of a pandemic should force the federal government to consider access to counsel and also prevent the Department of Homeland Security from playing whack-a-mole with some of these detainees by moving them around. So no one can quite see where they are on any given day. Uh, That fact always aggravates right to counsel. But my anecdotal information, which is insufficient, uh, and I apologize for that, is that individuals are being released to relatives to friends, uh, and to uh, charities that then try to find places for them. This is in the case of unaccompanied minors. Um, and the system has another problem, which is that the reception of these released individuals is inadequate, particularly in a time of uh, COVID-19, especially if these individuals are released to relatives who live in a uh, densely populated circumstances. I don't think we have to go into the fact that that only aggravates uh, the spread of COVID-19 in unincarcerated settings, which in no way should be an argument in favor of continued detention.
0: And just a quick follow-up on that question, are are hotels being um,
3: used? I've heard that that is the case in some jurisdictions, but again, I don't have statistics
2: yeah as far as i know um ice actually has there have been times when they held people in hotels briefly um but it's not common and i think as far as hotels being used as a place where people can self-isolate um that's happening in some cases um in particular hard-hit cities um if someone tests positive i think in general one thing i'm concerned about is will we even know about all the cases where someone who contracted COVID-19 in, ICE's, in ICE detention uh, dies from it. Um, it, it. We might not. They might release either. They might release people in you know, a sort of useful effort to uh, reduce the population and slow the spread down, and the system sort of loses sight of them, and they might get sick later. Or um, in some cases, ICE has released people You know, after they are taken to the hospital the final time so that they don't officially have to do an investigation of the death. And that would obviously be very problematic. Uh,
0: Dr. Allen, are are there kind of comprehensive ways that we can limit risks within detention facilities? Or by nature, is this going to be a dangerous environment during a pandemic and having more individuals in them is going to be just simply exposing more individuals to that danger and increasing potential rate of infections? Uh, and we've spoken a lot about trying to reduce the populations of detention facilities. Is is that really kind of the one way to address this issue? Are there kind of large-scale changes we can make to facilities themselves?
1: So there are tried and true techniques that we use in detention to try to limit the spread of infections. Uh, Remember, this is not our first time facing uh, outbreak of disease. And in fact, in detention health, we spent a lot of time thinking about tuberculosis, uh, varicella, which causes chickenpox, measles, and unvaccinated populations, norovirus, which is ca- causes gastrointestinal disease. There are a number of other infections that we're um, always uh, confronting and trying to limit the spread of. As I said at the beginning, it's the nature of this virus and how easily it is spread and the long period of asymptomatic carriage that created a rather unique challenge to detention settings. So uh, most um, facilities that I'm involved with uh, during this pandemic, uh, providing advice, recommendations, monitoring, um, are doing the best they can to try to leverage the old tried and true tools. They um, do screening questionnaires on arrival. will take people's temperatures. Um, uh, most, unfortunately, uh, are testing only based on positive answers to those screening questions, when I've argued in many cases they probably should be doing universal testing, although the limitations on that have often uh, been uh, attributed to lack of available tests. Um, and then isolation and quarantine. Um, basic hygiene, education of your population, making sure staff and detainees alike um, know what they need to know in the same way we're trying to educate the public and how they can protect themselves, distribution of personal protective equipment, face masks, make sure you have ample soap, access to, to sinks and soap and water, um, social distancing to the um, extent possible. So I think these are all uh, being utilized. And I think, you know, in, in, to the extent that I've interacted with facilities, um, they're trying their best to do those things because, again, as we've we've pointed out, they understand that the virus doesn't care which uniform you're wearing, you know, whether you're staff or you're detainee, um, that the virus is in that community and could affect uh, everyone. So um, those things um, uh, are, are being deployed to varying levels, Uh, there are certainly uh, facilities that are not providing enough soap, that are not providing personal protective equipment. So I don't wanna say (laughs) it's a perfect world out there, but those techniques exist, they should be used, they should be deployed, but I come back to the point um, I keep coming back to, we know that that alone will not be sufficient to prevent the spread through the facility and then out into the community related to these facilities. Um, and the other point I just wanted to make, I was thinking of it earlier in the, in the conversation, um, about, um, you know, the, we're just sort of dealing with the issue of the costs of our detention, our prison culture in the United States, our very punitive culture. Um, it's so embedded in our thinking collectively that we do lose track of logic and reason, um, as we look at this, such to the point that I, I think that I wonder the same thing, um, Is the Coronavirus Task Force devoting much attention at all to correctional facilities, to detention centers, as they might to cruise ships or nursing homes? Um, Many of us think not. And and the projections of the number of deaths that will result from this outbreak, uh, the modeling that we've seen done, often does not include the detention uh, aspect or the criminal justice Aspect. So it's just sort of astounding that good, well trained scientists um, put jails, prisons, and detention centers in just another box as if they don't exist in the community. Where those of us who work in the field or in the field of public health look at them and say, no, these are tinderboxes in your community. If you're being thoughtful and rational and trying to control this pandemic, these would be among your first priorities. So there's sort of an irrationality. Uh, to how we think in, in the US context and how we think, or we try to think of detention as sort of walled off and not part of our community, as if it was a penal colony on an island. But the reality is, these facilities exist in our communities, often in rural communities with limited healthcare resources. And as we've talked about before, with high traffic of, of uh, moving people between facilities. We say moving people between facilities in immigration detention, we're not talking about cross town. talking about cross-country. If you're not testing and you're moving people cross-country, you might be one of the most efficient vectors of spread. You know, the commercial airlines are shut down, but moving people for detention, that operation is still is going full tilt. So from a public health standpoint, that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh,
0: Go ahead, Catherine.
2: ICE had a a problem with a a mumps outbreak last year in its detention facilities um, that I think that they attributed it to unvaccinated individuals, but really it, it, most people who had the disease in, in ICE detention caught it in ICE detention. Um, and people weren't getting the booster vaccines in detention, and it just sort of went around the country for months. And, you know, that's a disease that we have a working vaccine for, and it's much, it's, it's not, um, fatal in, as, in nearly as many cases as, um, as COVID-19 is, which I think just goes to show how efficient these um, the ICE system can be at spreading infection.
0: We're um, approaching the hour. This has been a really insightful conversation. Uh, a lot of these um, briefings that we've been having on COVID and uh, constitutional rights often have a very dire tone, so I'm trying to end them on a much as a positive note as I can. So I would like to ask each of the panelists um, quickly, if you could just, what do you see as um, any long-term potential positive changes and improvements that actually might emerge from this situation and, and how we're responding to it?
2: I think um, one positive is it, it is at least um, forcing people to ask the question, does this person need to be in jail at all? And that's probably a Something that the United States would benefit from asking more broadly in the immigration context and then more generally. And I have lower courts have been acting with some urgency as they've been getting these cases, and that's helped somewhat. Um, but I'm not sure they're acting fast enough.
1: I, I would echo that and say that there's always been a cost, and it's been a high cost associated with the mass incarceration phenomena as we practice here in the United States. My hope is that this epidemic, this pandemic, as it relates to jails, prisons, and immigration detention, will focus some attention on the high costs of incarcerating so many people. Um, and on a related note, um, help us better to see, as a society, that those costs are shared by people in the free community, that, they're, that, that whether you like it or not, Detention facilities are part of your community.
3: You know, uh, COVID-19 does not have an ideological agenda. Uh, I, I've heard this from scientists, after scientists, not just from Dr. Allen, but from Dr. Fauci and from all of the good people uh, who have uh, really worked so hard to, to fight against the pandemic. Uh, the virus is opportunistic it will infect the people it can infect, and many of the people it infects will be asymptomatic, which means they're more likely to infect others because we're less likely to figure out that they're carriers. Having said all that, um, I agree that the fact that these centers are located in communities, where the guards live, where the warden lives, where uh, the nurses and healthcare workers live, means that if we don't control as much as possible, the spread of COVID-19 using good scientists' uh, opinions and judgments and best practices, uh, we're never going to get rid of this in the time period we hope. Um, We might be able to declare victory uh, in regard to certain parts of a town or city, but that will only be temporary if COVID-19 is going to jump, as it will, uh, from incarceration and detention centers to communities. My optimism is born of necessity. Uh, That is to say, I think authorities will have to realize what we're all saying on this panel, uh, sooner or later, and I'm hoping sooner. Also remember that anti-immigrant and immigrant fairness uh, disagreements ebb and flow. And I think that we may, and I'm hoping sooner rather than later, enter a period where we go from a more nativist direction, which by the way, only adds to the problems of the spread of COVID-19, to a fairer direction that is in fact on a cost-benefit analysis uh, advantageous to all of us. So COVID-19 may be a very harsh lesson that we will be taught and that we will have to act upon, I hope, sooner rather than later.
0: Thank you everyone who tuned in today for this discussion and a huge thank you to our panelists. This has been a very enlightening discussion on um, an incredibly important aspect of uh, this ongoing pandemic and the issues surrounding it. So thank you so much for being here to chat with us and uh, help us think more about how we should be looking at this issue. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day.
1: Thank you. Thank you.